Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here again in, in Australia and in Canada, uh, in, in, in Canberra as well. Um, I, I would say Canberra's a rather uh, a, a curious place for people to come in from outside. It's very difficult to understand, but I've been looked after very well. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I, I chose this particular title before you had a change of Prime Minister. Um, uh, I, I have to tell you that it's been uh, welcomed all over the world. Um, the, uh, uh, this is a non-party political comment. Um, it's, um, it, it is uh, great hopes that we have of a, of a, of a different approach. Because uh, at the heart of what we are discussing is the fact that the world has changed. Outside uh, the confines of uh, a very small number of people, the world has decided that climate change is happening. It's taken them a long time, because I remember arguing about this back in the 1980s. I remember Mrs. Thatcher um, believing in it in the 1980s, because she was a scientist. She said, uh, the risk is clear. It's uh, obvious, and we need to take it seriously. And that's why she made that great speech at the United Nations, uh, to explain why it was that we could not ignore the threat of climate change. But she also understood that it was particularly relevant uh, to people uh, of her political persuasion, which is why we've always found it so difficult that Australia didn't appear to understand the same argument. So I want to start by that, because it seems to me that one of the things about climate change is that it demands of us a response. When I was doing a good deal of research on the subject, my son was writing a book on the Black Death. And you know how it is, well, some of you will know how it is, when your child is writing a book, you have to read the chapters as they come off the machine. And I read it while trying to do some research on climate change. And it struck me that there was a fascinating parallel here between the two. Because uh, one in three of the population of Europe died in the uh, Black Death. Uh, but people had no idea why it was happening. They could not comprehend what this was. Uh, they called it an act of God, by which they meant an act which we don't understand. And in fact, they did all the things you shouldn't do. They got together in churches to pray and gave it to each other. It was uh, not a successful campaign at all because they had no knowledge. We are faced with something that could cause devastation. Indeed, if we let it get out of hand, will cause devastation. But we know. The difference is that we know. And the problem with knowing 
is that it implies responsibility. You cannot know and ignore. Well, you can, but that is not a moral position that you can uphold. Uh, and the older I get, the more I think that uh, the first chapters of Genesis are very true, that knowledge, that once you know, once you've eaten the apple, you can't go back. You do know. And it changes what you can do and how you can do it. It's no longer thinking that you can sit in the garden happily and think that things will be as if you didn't know. And we do know. Now that's what seems to me to be at the heart of the problem. When Australia announced uh, its proposals for Paris, I found them very peculiar. Because they were clearly proposals, but they were clearly unsatisfactory. They clearly didn't achieve the end that they had to achieve. So why make the proposals at all? If you don't believe in it, you shouldn't do anything about it. If you do believe in it, the last thing you ought to do is something which is so poor that it clearly will do no good. So I've always thought that really the threat to us is to know and to pretend that we don't know, or to know and refuse to accept the implications of what we know. And, and, and this, to most of us, is at the heart of the argument. We know, therefore we must act. And if we act, we must act effectively enough. And to act effectively enough is to take seriously what is a long-term but urgent problem. Long-term because we can't change from where we are to where we have to be overnight, but urgent, because if we don't start now, the cost will be, will, will be far too great, and more importantly, we probably won't manage it. So there is a real urgency, and there is a real need for long-term thought. And that again is the problem with the Australian proposition, because there is no mechanism that is in place that's going to deliver even the very poor proposition that is being offered at Paris. I want to just say a word or two about the proposition itself. First of all, I've been around long enough in politics to know that there is a very well-known political trick which if you want to pretend to be doing better than you are, you change the baseline. If you alter the baseline, you can make almost anything look pretty good. And, and if you notice, Australia now has a baseline entirely unconnected with anybody else's baseline, and indeed entirely unconnected with its own previous baselines. So I'm not, terribly, uh, I'm not terribly impressed with that. And the whole purpose of it was to make it look as if, to make it look as if what was being offered was at least something like what the Americans were offering. Of course it wasn't, because it was going to happen five years later, and the comparison was, of course, not the same basis as that which the Americans had had. So what we've got is a proposition which puts, Amer puts uh, Australia at the back of the pack. No good saying we're more or less in the centre, as I think Greg Hunt said. It's not true. It just isn't true. <laughs> the fact is that there are very few countries in the world that are offering in, um, uh, in uh, Paris anything less than Australia. Now, I've had people say, well, why does that matter very much? Australia's a very small contributor overall to the uh, uh, emissions. Uh, the trouble is, every country I've ever been to tell you that. 
it's, uh, it's the natural argument. You say, Britain does it. You know, we're only 2% of the world's uh, emissions, so what, what happens if, if we don't do it, it doesn't matter, and if we do do it, it doesn't matter, because China is much more important than we are. It's the sort of argument that is brought forward. Now, there are three reasons why that doesn't work. The, f the first is because everyone can say it, so nobody would do it. If we all have the situation which says we don't need to do it because we're not big enough, then you're leaving it for other people. After you, Claude, is no answer to the problems of uh, climate change. Uh, the second reason why it doesn't work is that actually, unless each of us does it, we're not going to add up to the numbers we've got to add up to. And, and what's more, other people, we are giving other people the excuse of not doing it, and, and particularly Australia. Because one of our difficulties is that we've got a whole lot of developing countries, all of whom are going to have to join in if we're going to win this battle, but who are in a much worse position to do things than us who are developed countries. And if you're Burkina Faso, or you're South Africa, or you're Chile, and Australia doesn't join in, it is all too easy to say, well, if they don't think it's important enough, I don't see why I should. Because I'm poor and I need uh, all sorts of other things, and they've got those things, so I'll leave it to them. So, Australia has a really important role to play, and there's a third reason too, and that is your, your role in this part of the world. I don't know whether you've seen that uh, Kiribati has just bought land in Fiji in order to be able to settle its whole population when Kiribati disappears under the sea. Now, how can anyone living in what is, in general terms, that area of the world, how can anyone suggest that they can stand aside and allow climate change to do that to what is, in the big and fastnesses of, uh, of this part of the world, a neighbour? How can one possibly expect others to take you seriously if you don't take seriously the biggest threat, material threat, that this world has got. So there are three good reasons why Australia should be doing better. And there's another argument altogether, which is this. Uh, people say, I had it on the radio, um, a lady who runs a blog called the Skeptics Blog. Of course, they're not skeptics, actually, the climate change deniers. Uh, they are... Uh, dogmatists, because their dogma is that climate change isn't happening. Or if it is happening, it doesn't matter. Or if it is happening, it doesn't matter in any way human beings have got nothing to do with it. Whereas the people who believe in climate change do so on the basis of science and would change if the science changed. I'd love it to be possible to say that climate change isn't happening. If you could only prove that to me, I would be thrilled, because it's extremely urgent and extremely dangerous. And I'd love not to have to believe in it. So I'm the sceptic, because that's how I look at science. I've come to this conclusion, as Mrs Thatcher all those years ago came to the conclusion, because on the scientific basis, this is happening. As far as anything is certain, it is. But of course, it's always subject to somebody finding some different information just happens to be true that every bit of inf information that we've had over the last 30 years has made it even more clear that climate change is happening and that human beings are actually affecting it. So why is it therefore particularly important 
for Australia. I've suggested there are particular importances about the rest of the world, but for you yourself, it is also vital. First of all, this is a very vulnerable country. Water has always been a difficulty here. And as the world warms, the lack of water is going to be the first and continuing uh, problem. You've had this year the experience of another hot year and we're only in spring. For the world, 2015 is already the hottest year since records began in the 1880s. This is also not the first hot year. The last 10 years, we've had about nine, no, seven of the hottest years we've ever had. In other words, we're living in a world in which the changes are becoming more and more palpable. I'm interested, for example, in looking at El Nino. I see somebody said, some uh, distinguished climatologist in, in, in Australia, that we uh, feared a Godzilla of a, uh, of a Nino. I don't much like that concept because Godzilla seems to me to be a single possible uh, imaginary being. Whereas what is happening is that El Nino, every time we have it, it's a natural phenomenon, but every time we have it, it's worse. If you look back over it, you can just see the thing is exactly like that. So that the point, the tip, is higher and higher every time over the last six El Ninos. So, so we're looking at a situation in which all the time things are getting more extreme. Just take this last fortnight. I've taken it at random because I'm here at random. It happens to be the fortnight I'm here. But what has happened this last fortnight is that the floods in southern France have been so great that they've called it apocalyptic, is the phrase that the newspapers tried to cover, because it's not true that you normally have in Cannes and Nice in early October, late September, floods of that kind. Indeed, we very often go there to have a bit of sun before we uh, face the English winter. Well, very often go if you're lucky enough to be able to go. I've never myself been in that position, but I understand that that is a well-known British activity, walking along the Promenade des Anglais in early October. Well, you'd have been blown off your feet and probably drowned. That is the difference. At exactly the same time, in South Carolina, they had floods of such extremity that they too had to use religious language. They had to say it is of biblical proportions because it was so great and is so great and the number of people who've lost their homes and their lives and have been seriously injured has meant that the Red Cross have been at full alert looking after people who have been flooded out. At the same time, one of the worst typhoons to hit uh, uh, China uh, has uh, devastated the area. 200,000 people are homeless in the area around uh, uh, Shanghai. The Thais, this very fortnight, have announced the results of some research they've done with the Canadians to show that what used to be 200-year uh, events are now happening probably every decade. But of course, not spaced out. 
the frightening thing is that they may happen in three years, one after the other. And uh, again, this very moment in Guatemala, the worst mudslides that they have had for generations. Now, none of these things can be put down to climate change. But the intensity and the frequency are, of course, the result of the fact that we have a different climatic condition than we have had before. If you look at the work that was done on Hurricane, um, the, the Hurricane Sandy in the United States, what you see is a normal hurricane. They have a lot of hurricanes, and this is one of them. But it was a much worse one because of the conditions which were caused by the higher temperature which has been caused by climate change. So we are in this situation in which we must expect more extreme weather more frequently, and there is no part of the world uh, that one can think of which is as vulnerable, or certainly no part that is more vulnerable than Australia, except possibly Bangladesh, which is, of course, all below sea level. So they are in a particularly difficult position. But you are a great nation, a very vulnerable nation. And the second reason why it's so important for Australia is that it's hugely important for your future. Uh, it's curious how people say, well, we can't do anything about it because we're great exporters of coal, and therefore we can't do anything about it. Do you really think they're going to be the kind of export markets for coal, given what we're going to have to do? The Chinese, as you know, have bought a lot less coal recently, and I've just seen the report done by a series of serious international economists to say that this is not just a flash in the pan. This is not just something that's happened because of the run slowdown in the, in the uh, Chinese economy. It's, it's actually happening as a permanent result of the Chinese taking very seriously the threat of climate change. So what the Chinese are doing, of course, are becoming the largest investors in solar power and in offshore wind and in onshore wind in the world. When the Chinese decide to do something, they do it in a big way. So unless, unless Australia thinks seriously about its own future, then it will not uh, be able to protect the future of its people, not just because of the vulnerability to the effect of climate change, but because of the vulnerability to the changes which are going to be made by other countries about the importation of fossil fuels. And oddly enough, <laughs> the, the Saudi Arabians have already got there. Why do you think that the price of oil is now controlled in the way that it is by Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia is reckoned very simply. They have the cheapest oil in the world. They want to get as much money as they can for that oil. And they have estimated that they've got 30 years to do it. Because in 30 years' time, it'll be the end of the fossil fuel period. And, uh, and so they say to themselves, what we don't want is anybody else producing oil. Uh, what we want to do is to keep the price just low enough to stop the tar sands just low enough to stop the investment which will give other people the ability to compete with us because we know that once the investment has been done, then people write that off and they're able to compete. So let's stop that investment. Let's, what we'll do is to sell our oil at that price and keep it there 
and we'll have 30 years of guaranteed income. And by the time we've used up all our oil, we will have got the maximum that we can from that. And in order to eke it out, what are we doing? Well, the Saudis have got one of the world's biggest programs of solar power that there is. Because, of course, what they were doing was subsidising the fuel for their own population, it being that sort of regime, needing to keep its own population reasonably happy, realised that it wasn't going to be able to do that and still be able to sell it over that period abroad. So what did they do? They started this programme, which, surprisingly enough, is run partly by the state oil company, uh, the programme for uh, the provision of a very, very large amount of generation by, um, by solar power. And if you live in Saudi Arabia, solar power is a very sensible thing to have because you've got it most of the year round. So, so they have taken the view that although climate change is inconvenient, although climate change is something that they, in international negotiations, pretend they don't believe in, they've taken the view that it's actually going to mean the end of the fossil fuel world. Now, if I were an Australian, I'd be saying to myself, how can I rely upon my export of coal? Who's going to buy this in the long term? Should I not be doing the changes now that enable me to organise this on a sensible, reasonable, cost-effective way? Now, of course, there are many voices out there that don't want that to happen. The coal industry is not known for its progression. The coal industry is not a progressive organisation. It tends to say, let's get as much money as we can out of it now. Let's not think too far ahead. That's one of the problems. It's not surprising that the Coach brothers in America, very large coal owners, have been pouring literally billions of dollars into supporting candidates in the United States who deny climate change. And they're doing it very straightly because they want to go on selling their product and they are seeing how much their prices have fallen, how difficult it is to keep that price up. And we in Australia have to accept that there's a good deal of misinformation around, uh, which has been peddled by all sorts of people. Now, I'm not going to uh, point the finger at anybody particularly, but my, my view is always to follow the money. If you want to know where the truth is, first of all, find out in whose interests particular statements are made. And uh, there is an interest, which is the immediate profit of the fossil fuel industry. Now, the problem is that fossil fuels are immensely subsidised, specifically in Australia, by all kinds of tax advantages but also because they are not charged the price that their product ought to be charged. This one ought to look back on history. If you think about the United Kingdom, we're doing a lot of cleaning up now, and have been over the last 20 years, cleaning up after our Victorian forefathers. What they did was to make products and forget about the mess they left. Forget about the piles of slag at the heaps at outside the coal mines. Forget about the waste that they left, both in holes and in piles. And we, in order to protect our environment, are spending a lot of money uh, trying to clean up after them. 
and also trying to clean up our own activities at the same time, so we're having to do both. But what it meant was our Victorian forefathers made a lot of money which they shouldn't have made because they charged a price which did not include the cleanup. They charged a price which was not the real market price. And therefore, they made a profit which they stole from the next generation. And that is exactly what the fossil fuel industry is doing today. It's making a profit which it steals from the next generation because it isn't paying the price of the ill health which it causes, of the climate change it is doing, and the dirt which it is purveying onto buildings and uh, 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 the general environment. None of that is charged for. So when people talk about why do you subsidise uh, renewables, the answer is partly because you've got to make up for the subsidy that is automatic if you don't pay the proper price for fossil fuels. Now, I've just been made the advisor to the United Nations on carbon pricing. For me, it is obvious, and I have to be honest about it, I'm a conservative, I believe in the market. And the problem we've got is that we don't have a market, we have a false market. And, and the sort of Tea Party argument is itself a false argument. Uh, I repeat, Mrs. Thatcher saw that. She saw that a market has got to be a real market. The price has got to be a real price and not a subsidised price. And we have created a false market by not charging the price that we ought to be charging for the fossil fuels for the real price that they exact on the public as a whole. Now, it's worse in some countries. Here is an example. At least in Britain, we don't overtly subsidise in addition the production of fossil fuels. But uh, in Australia, you do. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, tax agreements and arrangements uh, which add to that subsidy and therefore distort the market even more. And that's why I find it so inconceivable the right, the centre-right, should not understand that what it is defending is a false market. And that what it ought to be saying is, we've got to get the market straight, because unless the market charges the proper price, the pressures and power of the market will not work. We will not have the change in behaviour which happens when the market makes demands by charging people the real cost. And that's why the leaders of uh, the battle against climate change in much of the world have been on the right. Angela Merkel and Mrs Thatcher and David Cameron and the like believe in the market. And their argument is precisely this, that the market is the only mechanism strong enough to make the changes that are necessary, but the market won't work unless you make sure that the price is real. Now, in passing, you may have to subsidise the uh, beginnings of a renewable energy industry. That's what we've done in the United Kingdom. We've done that because it is difficult to work in a world in which the fossil fuel industry has all the advantages of a basic infrastructure. Even if you were charging the proper price, it's still true that it's quite difficult to get into an established market where the infrastructure has already been paid for and much of it written off. 
The second reason is that you need to give people the opportunity to commercialise what may be a very effective alternative means of generation, but you need to have scale to make it competitive. And so in Britain we have uh, been spending very significant sums of money. Government put aside £7.6 billion between uh, uh, four years ago and 2020 in order to get started on our decarbonisation of electricity. It's a very significant sum of money. It's paid for by the people who buy the electricity. The customer pays for it. It adds to their bills a certain amount, not a huge amount, but a certain amount. But it is their insurance for the future. It's a proper insurance to make sure that we will be able to keep industry and uh, homes alight and alive even when we are unable to use fossil fuels. And we've been so successful that we're in trouble, to be perfectly truthful. Uh, the figure of 7.6 billion was proposed by the Independent Climate Change Committee, which I chair, and the government accepted it. Interesting that a Conservative coalition with the Liberal Democrats should accept that at a time in which everything else was being cut because of the uh, recession. Only that and overseas aid were in fact increased. Now, that money was supposed to deliver. The trouble is we've been more successful than we thought. Offshore wind, we thought, would operate at about 27% efficiency. That's the mechanism that we worked out. As you know, fossil fuels work between 40 and 50% efficiency. We thought offshore wind would be something like 27 it's turned out to be 40% efficient. And the result, of course, is that it all costs us more because there's a lot more energy being produced and we're paying the difference between that and the gas price. That's how we do it. Contract for difference. They made a contract for difference and there's a lot more stuff going into the, uh, into the grid. So the government is now trying to think of a way out of that because it's budgeted on a sensible basis and it's now finding that what was 7.6 billion looks like being something rather closer to 10.6 billion, which is rather a lot of difference. And uh, that's why it's trying to make some alterations in the way in which it's doing that support. Of course, the reason that it was in that position in the first place is because it does have a long-term program which is urgent in its implementation. And I want to end by saying a few words about that. It is this mixture of having a long-term and continuous programme and being urgent about it which is so essential. We have a thing called the Climate Change Act which was passed by Parliament. It was not a party political act, it was a parliamentary act. It was the most amazing decision that we have made. It was passed, first of all, by the biggest majority we've ever had, only eight people voting against it. They're still against it. Um, uh, but they, it was a cross-party thing. It was the opposition that invented it. It was the Conservative Party working with Friends of the Earth that wrote the Act. And then we got everybody else to join in on the opposition, everybody from the Protestant Unionists to the Independents, everybody signed up. And then we went to the Labour government and said, we've got 100 Labour members of Parliament 
who will break the party whip and support this, so why don't you take it on? So it became a government bill. Had to be a government bill, because they'd lose otherwise, so they had it. So we can honestly say that all political parties supported it. And that's where we are today. We have that consensus. And the trick in it, very simple trick, was to face the fact of democracy, which is that if you have four- or five-year parliaments, you can't run a long-term campaign against climate change. There's a real issue, a dislocation of time. And so what we did was to say, we're going to take this out of Parliament, and we're going to have an independent climate change committee, which is going to have statutory powers. And its job is to produce the budgets which are cost-effective on a pathway to reduce our emissions by 80% by the year 2050. That is a statutory requirement. Parliament has made that a statutory requirement. And we have set the first budgets right the way up to 2027. We've uh, got the fourth carbon budget there. And uh, I'm working with my colleagues to produce the fifth carbon budget, which will take us to 2032. It's a five-year program. Then we do the next one and move on in that way. Rather a long way ahead, but that gives a degree of security and understanding for business because they know where we're going and they've got a real basis for making decisions. That's what we're doing. Uh, and uh, the way we do it is that each budget is presented to Parliament. And Parliament either passes it or makes changes which will result in the same end. In other words, it can't say we don't want to do it for those five years. It's got to have an alternative route from the one that we're presenting, and it's got to add up. And the Climate Change Committee monitors that every year and produces a report, and Parliament is then presented with that report, and the government is statutorily required to make the changes that are necessary to meet the budget if it's falling behind. Uh, the other trick in it, if you like, the remarkable thing, is that um, when you've passed a budget, you can't change it unless the Climate Change Committee independently says that circumstances have altered to such a degree that you need to tighten or uh, loosen the budget. And there was an attempt to make changes in the fourth carbon budget. Uh, the, uh, the Climate Change Committee made an independent assessment and came back to the government and said, no, I'm sorry, there is no basis for change because things have not changed sufficiently for you to need to change. And the government had to accept that, therefore, the budget could not be changed. So we've created this very important tension between the immediate demands of a parliament of five years and the long-term necessity of uh, the climate change which doesn't wait for us and which we have to deal with on a continuum each year doing a bit more, or the cost will be too great, and indeed we may miss the chance altogether. So in December, when we come to the great discussions in Paris, nations will come with different propositions. But the 28 countries of the European Union, the United States, Mexico, Brazil, a whole range of unlikely countries 
are going with a real determination to face this huge human threat. We know, and therefore we have to act. It is the fundamental nature of this threat which we need to face, because it is something which humanity has got to answer. If we don't answer it, we will be less than human. Because the great gift that has been given to humanity is to be able to use our minds to overcome the circumstances of our environment. We've misused our minds and have become uh, marauders as far as the environment is concerned. Past generation used to talk about conquering nature. This generation has begun to learn that we have to live with nature and that nature and ourselves are part and parcel of the same thing. And if you haven't read, and it doesn't matter what religion view you have, if you haven't read the papal encyclical, do so. Because it is most beautifully written. And what it reminds us is that we are dealing with very, very fundamental human matters here. We're dealing with the planet which gives us our lives. And we're dealing with it and learning that the only way we can solve these problems is by solving them together. It isn't possible for rich nations to say, well, we'll go on running the world for our benefit, and the rest of people can take the pain. It isn't possible for us to continue the fundamental lack of justice in our planet. Because this is a threat to all of us, and it can only be solved by all of us being part of that solution. That's why when I hear people say, oh, well, we won't do it until the Chinese do it. When I hear people say, well, I don't see why I should do it, after all, I'm reasonably comfortably off. All our comfort is based upon the destruction of our planet. We have a price to pay for the pollution that has given us our riches. So it isn't about Australia having only a small amount of the emissions. It isn't about Britain only having 2% of the emissions. It's about the fact that over the generations we have grown rich by not paying the real price for the fossil fuels we've used. And we've now got to pay that price. And we've got to pay it because we know. And we know that if we don't pay it, this planet will no longer be able to function. And it will not just be the poor who will suffer, although they are more vulnerable than the rich. It will be all of us. And it's not just the next generation. It's the flooding in South Carolina and the south of France and in China in this generation now. Climate change is here. It's not going to wait for Australia. And therefore, Australia has to act with the rest of the world 
to give our children any chance at all. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure that there are many comments and questions. So let's open this up for questions if you're ready. So, Eric. Yeah, thanks for that. Are we on? Yeah. Uh, thanks for that presentation. Um, look, with the change of prime ministership in Australia, um, with it's been very entertaining, uh, and some ministers are singing from a new song sheet, <laughs> and some still seem to be using the, the old song sheet. Uh, and sometimes some speak with silvery tongues, like uh, Greg Hunt, our environment minister. Have you, have you uh, had any meetings with Australian ministers so far, and what sort of message are you hearing? Uh, and particularly, have you spoken to the Climate Change Authority? Well, um, I've... I've spoken with a number of Australian ministers, not just now, but at other times. I had a long uh, dinner with Greg Hunt, and I know um, uh, your new Prime Minister reasonably well and respect him considerably. Um, I have to say, uh, it has always been difficult to follow quite the logic of the previous uh, administration. Uh, I just have to say, it's not easy quite to understand it, uh, because it seemed to me, as I say, to be based upon the principle that climate change wasn't happening, but we have to do enough. Why? And therefore, what was enough? There was no measurement, because if it weren't happening, then what were you trying to do anything at all? And if it was happening, why aren't you doing more? So we, I've never really managed that. I had a long meeting with, uh, with Tony Abbott, and I had four different explanations of climate change during the one meeting, so I did find that quite difficult. Uh, I have to say that I think Greg Hunt is, try is trying. I mean, that in the proper sense. I think he, I think he does understand what the difficulties is, and he's been, he's been working. I mean, it is true you have to do your best in the circumstances you find yourself. I'm hoping that the new circumstances will make it possible for him to do a lot better. And uh, I think our job is to encourage it. This is the government, and it might well be the next government. So let's make sure it's as good as it can be. So I'm not very keen on trying to drive wedges between people. I spend a lot of time defending the, uh, the consensus in Britain. I get very cross when Conservatives make points against Labour and Labour make points against Conservatives. I don't think that's how you proceed in this area. A good deal of encouragement is what we need. You've had a change. It's a surprising change. Our job now is to encourage this government with this Prime Minister to do better because they're there. And there's not going to be a change until there's an election. And if there's an election, there might not even be a change then. So let's just make sure they do their best. And actually, any party in power finds it difficult. It's very easy to be green in opposition, I always say. And much more difficult when you're trying to run the show. So let's do as much as we can to make them do it as well as they can. Thank you. Uh, gentleman in the front? <coughs> yes. Thank you. 
Do you have a question? Yes, I do have a question. How do you reconcile the Antarctic ice levels are now up to standard deviations above the 25-year average? The Arctic ice is Right. I, I, yeah, right. Okay. Now I'll tell you about those. No, no. Um, look, let me tell you. Um, uh, let me first of all challenge you about this. Now, if you went into hospital. Oh, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, you, I can answer you. If you went into hospital and you had a bad leg, you'd want an orthopedic surgeon to look at it. You wouldn't, no, just, all right, yeah, but the point about you is this, very simple. No, I've got, let me, yeah, okay. Those questions have been looked at by the finest climatologists in the world, and they are united in saying that climate is changing, that the temperatures of the sea, for example, are rising regularly. They are saying that what you've just said is not true, and yet you still continue to say that they're wrong. Now, I just have to say to you very simply, let us for one moment, let us for one moment believe, for just for one moment think, that you might be right. So you are asking us to ignore all the experts and follow you. Now, I don't mind doing that, except I'm taking a... No, with great respect, you're not. You're talking about following the opinion ground-based, not upon the evidence, but upon bits picked out, which have been, which... No, I'm sorry. You are, a, you are interpreting the figures in a particular way. Look, I'm sorry. Look. Yeah, look, with great respect. No, not with great respect. I'll tell you what I think about you. I think this. I think that if you went into hospital and the experts told you to do something, you would say, no, I know best. I know better than the people who are going to mend my... That is not right. I'm, this is your problem. This is your problem. You are putting your views... You're putting your views against all the expert views. Now, let me tell you, it's all right for you. It's all right for you to do that. But I'm not putting my children's future in your hands against the experts. Because you're the kind of person who, when they say, when 95% when of the aeronautical experts say that aeroplane is going to crash, you'll say, you'll say no, I don't mind, because I've got 5% who don't believe it's going to crash. Would you put your child on that aeroplane? Would you actually say, I'm going to risk it? No, the, point, the trouble with you is that you do what any... You're the Jehovah's Witness. You're the Jehovah's Witness of, uh, of, the, of, of the climate change world. That's your problem. You, 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 pick, you pick the odd bit out of the Bible or the facts and say, therefore I know. So I tell you what, I prefer to remain a Catholic and not follow the Jehovah's Witnesses. Can I have the next question, please? Oh, there we are. Because I'm not going to convince him because he knows best and the scientists have got it wrong. That's the problem. <laughs> no, look at, the, look at the data and you can't agree with him. Can we move on, please? I'm going to pass the next question. I'm so question. pleased he came because it cheers us all up. Now, 
you've got to have one of those. I usually advertise for them, but he's come free of charge. <laughs> uh, it's a hard act to follow, Jenny. So. <laughs> um, we have a carbon budget of 550 gigatons, yeah. and there's something like 2,700-odd gigatons in reserves of all fossil fuels. Now, you talk about Saudi Arabia and spinning their oil out for mm. another 30 years, but we, have, we can only burn um, you know, a, quarter at mo a quarter, a third of all reserves. Now, how are we going to persuade the Saudis to sort of keep their oil in the ground as well as Australia about keeping the coal in the ground? Well, that's why I think you have to put a proper price on it. The only way we're going to deal with this is if we actually charge the proper price. Because what the proper price does is to drive other ways. They make it possible for us to make renewables work. Uh, the proper price will ensure that we use it more efficiently. I mean, we could get by with half the fossil fuels we have simply by using them efficiently and still live the sort of lives we're leading. So, so we can do a huge amount, but human beings don't do that unless you charge them for it. And it does have to be charged. And once you start to charge it, then you begin to change behaviour. And it's already happening. In Britain, it's now true that uh, onshore wind is cheaper than any alternative. In various parts of the country, in Texas, I understand, it's true both of onshore wind and of solar. So it's already happening. And it's fascinating to see how much it's changed just come over from America, I hadn't been there for a year, uh, already the change, you're seeing it all the time, the, the number of people who are making choices in that society because the costs uh, of uh, making those changes have become so much less. You've got to help it on its way by subsidy, you've got to help it on its way by regulation, by making sure that people are cleaner than they were, all those things you have to do. But you're perfectly right, we cannot both fight climate change and burn all the fossil fuels we know about. And an awful lot of it's got to stay in the, in the ground. The only way to keep it in the ground is to make it too expensive to dig it out. And that's what we should be doing. I'd like to pass over to the side of the room now. Thank you very much uh, for your uh, very effective uh, defence and advocacy <laughs> of science. Excellent work there. My question is back to a parochial Australian case. Uh, we've been a big exporter of coal. We're a big exporter of uranium. We're soon to be the world's largest exporter of LNG. Does gas still remain a bridge to a new energy system or is it a cul-de-sac? Well, I think it's a bridge as long as you don't allow the development of an infrastructure which itself becomes the means whereby the bridge is not crossed. So you need all the time, of course it's better to use gas than coal. Of course it's better to reduce the emissions on that basis. And it is true that we don't yet have the technology to depend entirely on renewables, and therefore you've got to have bridge technology. Uh, and that's why in Britain part of the programme is to have some increase in nuclear power, because we can't do it without something of that sort. 
whether we'll have much of it given the price and given the speed with which the cost of renewables comes down, I have my doubts, but I think we'll certainly have some of it. And uh, I do think we would be quite wrong not to replace coal with gas as long as we don't do so in a way which makes it very difficult to replace gas with stored electricity when we know how to store it cheaply, which is obviously the breakthrough. Or we may actually save ourselves because if carbon capture and storage comes on in the way it could, then we could go on using gas for some longer time. In the end, we've got to learn to be able to get the energy we need without damaging the environment. And so renewables are the answer, but we have to get there. And sometimes I think the extreme greens un uh, undermine what we're trying to do, because they want us to get there immediately. And there is, there is, I'm afraid, a rather unpleasant Puritan streak among some green apologists. Um, they, they ought to remember that you've got to take people with you. That doesn't mean to say you compromise in such a way as you damage the whole uh, campaign. But it does mean you've got to take people with you. And if you remember, praise God, bare bones, uh, uh, didn't want Christmas and didn't want uh, mince pies. But in the end, he didn't take people with him. And they wanted their Christmas and they wanted their mince pies. And people want both Christmas and mince pies as well as fighting climate change. And we have to find the most cost-effective way of reaching that. And I do believe we shouldn't get hung up on particular mechanisms. Otherwise, we're becoming dogmatic in a way we shouldn't be. And therefore, I myself do believe that there are a whole range of things. And gas is going to play a part. But don't let it become, instead of a bridge, a barrier. In the front here, and then the lady in the pink shirt at the back, and then we'll come down here. Yes. The, um, the former Australian Labor government was planning to link the Australian carbon market when they had <laughs> one to the European one. The European markets had some problems. Should we go with the Chinese? <laughs> well, I don't think that's actually a choice because the Chinese are working their six different systems are, um, in order to have one system when they have worked it out. And it is, in fact, although they won't say it in that way because you can't expect them to, but let me say it is not... It is not impossible that the two, the European and the Chinese one, will be able to operate together. That's the mechanism which they clearly are prepared to do. But they're not going to say it's a European system, so they will do it in a different way. But it will be close enough, uh, rather like the uh, continental gauge and the British gauge of railways. We can run on each other with a certain amount of uh, squeezing. And that's exactly what I think will happen here. It's always very sad that the European system hasn't worked, but of course it hasn't worked because we managed to do it at exactly the point at which we went into recession. So there, were far too much, there was far too much leeway in it, and that's why the price has dropped so much. Uh, and it's been quite difficult to get people back on course, but we are a bit better, and it's moving gradually, and I think after Paris it will. 
Uh, and in the end, it's the right way to do it because uh, it's a better system, I think, uh, to create the parameters within which everything else works than any other one that I know. But there are some very successful alternatives. Uh, if you look at what's happening in British Columbia, for example, where they have a carbon tax, I know that's a dangerous two words to say here, but they have a carbon tax, but they've done it brilliantly because they have an independent commission which makes sure that every penny raised in the carbon tax comes off the income tax. And the Canadians love that because they can avoid the carbon tax by not driving as much, but they have a lower income tax. Mm. And now all political parties in British Columbia support that, and they have now got a pretty high carbon tax and a much lower income tax. I do think this is a clever idea because people never trust governments with green taxes. They always think that green taxes are means of raising money. So if you put it into the independent way they've done it, it makes the tax acceptable. And I'm not sure we all ought to learn a lot from that. Uh, up towards the back, Ishmael. Put it right near your mouth. Oh, you're, you're very much in favour of the market um, for changing behaviour, for example, the price of coal. I just wanted to point out the important role of regulation in complementing markets. For example, the Australian government can choose to regulate against coal mining. But, but I, I agree at the same time that we need a price on resources. I'm wondering if you could shed some light on how you actually reach the right price. Well, <laughs> the market isn't everything because you constantly, have to, you constantly have to make sure that it's working and sometimes you have to have regulations to do that. I'm, I'm not opposed to regulation, I'm opposed to over-regulation. But you can have it. For example, we have regulations about, uh, about safety in coal mines. Uh, we could probably produce coal much cheaper if you didn't have safety regulations. But we have those regulations because we think there are sort of basic things that you have to, have to insist upon. So there is a balance between these two. You need to have both of them. And one of the ways in which we can encourage uh, non-fossil fuels is by having regulations about dirt. Uh, if you say you can't put filth into the atmosphere, you've actually got to clean it up, becomes much more expensive to have a coal-fired power station because you've got to clean up the, uh, the emissions. And that's indeed why there has been a move away from coal uh, in Britain, as largely because most of our coal-fired power stations couldn't meet the clean-up program without huge investment. So there are ways, as they would say, more than one ways of skinning a cat. Mm -hmm. uh, here in the middle. <laughs> I know that's a danger point nowadays. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that anything could survive the election of President Trump. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't think... First of all, I have every good reason to believe that's not going to happen. Um, it's awful to have a country in which it would be a terrible danger if one of the two parties actually is elected now. You see, I'm old enough to remember when the two parties were close enough for you to actually not be too miserable, whichever one worked. I, I've spoken to Republican meetings and uh, 
big meetings in the United States in the days in which they were a moderate party, um, it's changed hugely. Um, I, I don't think in the end that this momentum is stoppable because the United States has got a trade in a world in which the rest of the world is not going to put up with it. And what is more important is that its great companies have changed. I think we ought to recognise, and that's sometimes why I have to have a few words with some of the Greens, we ought to recognise just what leadership we're now getting from some of the major companies in the world. If you see what uh, Unilever are doing, if you see what Coca-Cola are doing, if you see what General Electric are doing, in terms of climate change, they are much better than many of the governments with whom they're working. They really are taking action themselves about their own footprint, which has been very remarkable. And I want to encourage that, because it seems to me that in the end they have power to make a difference. Let me give you one example. I'm biased about it because we've given some of this advice to them. But Coca-Cola used to uh, have all its refrigeration using HFCs. But because HFCs are a major global warmer, they have moved to a situation in which next year they'll buy no HFC-driven refrigeration. The biggest refrigerator purchaser in the world. If you look at the uh, fact that was not very long ago, something like 14 years ago, it used to take 10 litres of water to make one litre of Coke. It now takes just over one and a half litres. That's the effect. Now, you may not like Coke and you may not want to drink it, but all I'm saying is that they have acted where they can act in a very effective way. If you look at Unilever and see what Unilever has done to reduce its footprint and particularly its effect as far as climate change is concerned, it is huge. And what they're saying is that we want to double our sales and halve our impact. Now, these are huge changes. And if you think of what that might mean if a government did that, you see, or Australian government did that, you would then see what the size of those decisions are. So my own feeling is that no Republican Party could in the end manage to stand out against its natural allies, which are the big businesses of America. And those big businesses have to work in the world, and the rest of the world isn't going to have it. So my view is that it, uh, it would still, it would be a danger, it would be frightening, we would lose a lot of time, and it's not time that we've got. But I don't think it would be disastrous, not now. And I wouldn't have said that five years ago. Uh, right, here, there, and there. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, we all understand that it costs a subsidy to establish alternative fuel sources. You mentioned that Britain had invested or planned to expend in excess of five billion on the wind farms or wind energy. And then you said it became much more efficiently run and as a consequence, the subsidies went up to uh, seven billion. I'm not quite sure how that works. Wouldn't the reverse have occurred? No, well, I tell you why it works is that the way you do these subsidies is to sign a contract for difference, which is that you agree a, a, a subsidy over the price of the alternative, which in this case is gas. Now, that's all worked out on the basis that uh, these wind farms were going to be 27% efficient. So you worked out how much, they were going, how much energy they were going to put into the uh, grid, and so you knew, roughly speaking, how much it was going to cost you. And so 7.6 billion was the total amount that we expected it to be. Then we said, well, 
if the price of gas falls, then the gap will be bigger, but you have committed yourself to this, so you've got to have some... So, so we had a 20% um, uh, 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 little, uh, little, very large, 20% uh, room for manoeuvre, uh, knowing that if the price of gas rose, of course, you'd have 20% the other way. But what happened was that the price of gas fell, yes, but more importantly, they were producing at 40% and not at 27%. And we, of course, have a contract for difference. We have to pay that amount for every new uh, amount of, uh, of energy they put into the, uh, uh, into the system. So it goes up. It's a success because we've now got a much higher proportion of, uh, of renewable energy on our system than we had expected. But we have a cost-effective route to reach our cut of 80%, and part of that is the decarbonisation of our electricity. We're doing the decarbonisation rather quicker than we expected. The government's got to find a way of making sure that that doesn't outrun the cost-effectiveness of it. So that's where it, it, it happens. Now, we will move to a stage in which you won't use this system in the same way, and we've already started to. We now have... Um, a uh, bidding system. So you actually come and bid for what you're prepared to do, and there's a strike price which you bid. And very interestingly, it shows the difference in cost. Uh, three years ago, the strike price would be about 150, it's now 110. The nuclear price is 93. If it goes on like this, they will pass each other. Onshore wind is already cheaper than nuclear, significantly, as is onshore solar in our country, whereas, you know, we don't have an awful lot of sun. But, as you know, solar is really about light, but still it is working uh, remarkably well. But the cost to start with, you had to give them some guarantee because the amounts of money they're having to spend on offshore wind is huge. We are now the leaders of offshore wind. The changes have been enormous we would never have got there if they hadn't had a market. But they're now able to put these things up in the sea for 10 months of the year instead of 5 months of the year. They've now got rid of all the gears that are outside so that, in fact, they are much better at protecting themselves from the, air, from the, work, from the uh, uh, elements. And so they don't break down. Uh, so all that time that we expected we had to... Uh, they would have downtime. We don't have it any longer. Uh, the, the they used to put onshore windmills offshore. They now have a special kind of windmill which suits that. And it's only because they had a proper programme, and rather like the uh, Model uh, T Ford. It was when you got a lot of people buying it, uh, then you began to be able to bring the price down, and that's what the difference is. And we're still stuck with the price which we had to give them, but it's achieved its end, and in future it'll be cheaper. I think we've only really probably got time for one more, so I'll take the gentleman right at the back. Uh, thanks for that talk. Um, is population growth intractable, or is that part of the debate? I'm always surprised in this debate that we don't talk about the number of consumers. Well, they do, because they always say, oh, Australia can't uh, do this because it's got the fastest growing population. It's one of the lines, the, as you know, they always take up. Britain, of course, has the fastest growing population in Europe, uh, and yet we're doing it, because we've said it doesn't matter, in the sense that climate change won't wait. 
and if you have a bigger population, then there are more people who are going to be damaged by climate change, so you've got to get on with it. So I don't think it's an argument in that sense in the, in, in the debate. Um, no one has found an answer to population except prosperity. The thing that makes family size smaller is the prosperity of parents. And the reason that you have large families in developing countries is not primarily because of a lack of contraception. It's because it's the only way that you protect your old age. You have a lot of children and somebody's going to look after you. And that is fundamental. So you can spread out as many condoms as you like, but it won't work. Uh, and I'm interested in outcomes. Don't get into an argument about, about whether it's a good or bad thing. The outcome is very simple. If you raise the standards of living, people have fewer children. And it does look as if we may be on course for a beginning to fall in the rate of, uh, of uh, reproduction. And you can see it already in certain countries. If you look at the two most prosperous states of India, uh, Tamil Nadu and um, Kerala, they are both now not reproducing their population. They are actually having a below reproduction level, you know, whatever it is, 2.2, it's actually 1.9 or something like that. So it's happening. Why is it happening? Two important things, raising the standard of living and women's education. And crucial to this is women's education. I don't think that you can't do this unless you put those two things together. And, and I believe that um, that is the way we should deal with it. I'm going to finish by telling you a very naughty and entirely politically incorrect story. So if I get into trouble, and you can cut it out of the, um, uh, of the recording if you don't mind. If you get into trouble, then uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. But look, um, I was once taken around the Rocky Mountains Institute which was, I don't know whether you know about it, but it's a most wonderful operation done by a man called Amory Lovins, who is a guru, uh, a remarkable man, and slightly potty, as all great men are. And he was taking me round, and he said, frightfully sorry, but I've got to take round this man and his wife because he is going to invest a lot of money in an electric car I want to build. And he says his wife would like to come as well. And so the two of them came round. And this woman was one of those people, I'm sorry it was a woman, but it was a woman, um, because the story's entirely true, she was one of those women whom one is very lucky to know, because she knows everything. And, <laughs> and as you went round, she told me all the things that he didn't know about, this great guru, see? And I could have murdered her by the time we got <laughs> halfway, because I wanted to hear him, but she had all these comments. And she was a rather tall lady with teeth. And as we got to the end of it, she said to me, well, you know, you don't need any of this. All you need is population control. So I said, oh, yes. How very sensible, I said. I entirely agree with you. I said, if the Americans had no babies, it would be much easier. What do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, every American baby uses eight times the energy of every Bangladeshi baby. So, if we are being economical, it's better not to have American babies and have Bangladeshi babies. And she said, I didn't mean that at all. I meant that they shouldn't have babies. 
I said, yes, that's exactly what you mean. You mean that because you're guilty. You know you're guilty. You feel guilty because of the richness that you have and which the Bangladeshis don't have. So what you say is that they shouldn't have babies in order that you can go on enjoying a very much higher standard of living than they have. That's what you're about. And I'm afraid I find that offensive. I feel very often that that is the driving force behind population control. That's why I'm always saying it doesn't work. This good lady, I said to her, it doesn't work. You can go on talking about it as much as you like, but we know it doesn't work. If you want to change the world, you have to do it by having a more just world. You have to do it by making people able to think they have a future and therefore plan for that future. And they will then plan their families, but they'll do it because they know that having two children is what they can afford and they can give a future to. Whereas in the past they had ten children because one of those, or some of them, would look after them. And that's why the papal encyclical is so valuable, because he links poverty and its eradication with the battle against climate change and environmental degradation. What he makes is the point that you cannot divide these things. And after all, that's what all the aid agencies, Christian and non-Christian alike, tell you. That climate change is the biggest threat to the eradication of poverty that there is. And they'll also tell you that if you don't eradicate poverty, you have no hope whatsoever of doing something about the population explosion. So yes, population is in the mix, but you don't solve it in the simplistic way of my tall lady from Connecticut. You solve it by making all of us more generous to our neighbours and more able to recognise we live in one world and we either live together or we all die together. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.